You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, this is Janet Smith. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Dallas, and this is the seventh in a series of eight classes on sexual ethics. In this class period, I'll be discussing various reproductive technologies. And the first question might be, why would one cover reproductive technologies in a class on sexual ethics? Wouldn't it rather belong in a class on bioethics? It certainly does belong in a class on bioethics, but my argument is that it also belongs in a class on sexual ethics. Since, as we've been covering in this series, human sexuality has two purposes, the purposes of bonding and the purposes of babies, obviously anything that really has to do with how babies come to be in the world has to do with sexual ethics. We'll also see that questions of bonding and the questions of the purposes of marriage also come into play very much in the analysis of various reproductive technologies. So we're covering this topic because we're really concerned with, in a certain sense, the rights of babies, what we owe babies as far as their dignity is concerned and as far as their care and a loving approach of parents to their children. Now, the Church has written on this topic in a document that's called Donum Vitae, which means the gift of life. It's a very important phrase, Donum Vitae. You might notice the parallel with the title Humanae Vitae, which is the title of the Church's encyclical on contraception, which we've been talking about. This is a parallel document. It's sort of a, uh, two bookends. One document talks about sex and the relationship of sex and babies. In a certain sense, Donum Vitae talks about babies and their relationship to sex. The title is translated as the Instruction on Respect for Human Life in Its Origin and the Dignity of Procreation Replies to Certain Questions of the Day. It's an astonishing title given to a document known as Donum Vitae, The Gift of Life. It's a very long and ponderous title, but it's important. Instruction on respect for human life in its origin and the dignity of procreation. This was published in 1987. And as with many of the writings of the Vatican in these couple decades, it has really caused an amazing amount of interest on the part of the public. As a matter of fact, the whole document was printed in the New York Times shortly after it came out. I'll talk about this in a minute, but the interest that people have in what the Church has to say about these matters in itself is a fascinating reality. Just two other texts I'd like to refer you to, those of you who would like to follow this up and get more information. Certainly all the principles that we're going to be concerned about today are laid down in Donum Vitae. It's a very short document. It's 40 pages. Again, much worth reading. You'll learn an enormous amount about reproductive technologies, but perhaps even more so about the Church's respect for human life and the different principles that the Church uses. Another book that might be of interest to you is by a man named Andrew Kimbrell, entitled The Human Body Shop, The Engineering and Marketing of Life. Now this text is extremely useful because it covers many of the abuses of these reproductive technologies. And as I mentioned in the class I did on Humanae Vitae, we can often tell why actions are bad if we look at their bad consequences. Again, the Church does not teach that actions that are intrinsically wrong are wrong because they have bad consequences, but does teach that because they're wrong, they will have bad consequences. All you really need to do, I mean, you can read Andrew Kimball's book, it's very good, but you can also just read the daily newspaper and watch the evening news. 
And these topics of reproductive technology are in the news at least weekly, if not almost daily. I would say the most recent one is a woman who conceived a baby through artificial insemination by her husband's sperm, her husband who was already dead at least a year, and has successfully sued that the child that she has since had, since her husband died, be given full inheritance rights and full social security benefits from her husband. That's a very recent one, and I'll talk about other ones as we go along here. And the third text I would recommend is a text entitled Reproductive Technologies, Marriage, and the Church. This is a collection of essays published by a group called the Pope John Center. Now, the Pope John Center is something that's very worth knowing about. It's a group that works out of Braintree, Massachusetts, and it's a group that puts on conferences every single year for the U.S. bishops. It puts them on actually in Dallas, Texas, so I get to go along and listen in. But it's a week-long series of sessions for the U.S. bishops on various biomedical issues. And they've had several sessions on these various reproductive technologies. And that's, I guess, where I want to launch myself here. Again, it's this, this curious church that we have that talks about these issues and thinks it has a responsibility to issue documents on such issues. And many find the church extremely contradictory on this issue. They tend to see Humanae Vitae as a document that tends to make people have babies who don't want to have them. That Humanae Vitae says you can't use contraception, and some people understand that as saying you have to have as many babies as you want whether or not you want them. I've explained that that certainly isn't the church's position. Some people see Donum Vitae as saying, well, those of you who want to have babies, you can't have them, all right? There's different techniques that we could use to help you have babies, but we won't let you have them. So we have this curious church that says to one group of people, you have to have babies, and another group of people, we won't let you have babies. This is kind of a ridiculous charge, and in fact it is completely misdirected, but it's a popular misconception. And you could make a shorthand explanation of both documents, perhaps in this way. You could say that Humanae Vitae says there really shouldn't be any lovemaking without at least baby-making in the picture in some way. It doesn't mean, again, that you have to intend to have a baby. It doesn't mean that you can't, for a very long period of your life, determine that it wouldn't be a good idea for you and your husband, you and your wife, to have a baby. But it says lovemaking should include, in some sense, uh, respect for baby-making. And what Don Vitae says is that baby-making should always include, in some sense, lovemaking, right? that you shouldn't have baby-making that is very far removed from the act of lovemaking. First of all, these are fairly new issues. Again, I mentioned in the very first session that there's some difficulty in determining some moral issues, uh, especially those for which Scripture makes no judgment. Obviously, Scripture can't tell us whether or not in vitro fertilization or artificial insemination is moral. There are principles in Scripture that can help us determine it, but it doesn't speak directly to these issues because these technologies obviously did not exist at the time that Scripture was written. So those of us who live in the 20th century and are faced with all these various technologies, we're trying to figure out, would this be moral for us to use them or not? Is this in line with God's will or not? Where do we turn? How do we think about these things? Again, the church does think about these things and tries to help us think about them and issues different instructions for us. It does so here on the basis of, again, natural law, right? The church is not claiming some special revelation from God on these issues. The church claims, again, to be an expert in humanity and that a faithful and reliable interpreter of natural law. Again, we're faced with fairly spectacular technologies. The number of things that we can do for helping babies survive in the womb is astonishing. And what we can do at birth, the way that we've reduced the amount of infant death, 
and the way that we have increased people's ability to carry their children to term is absolutely remarkable. And now we have all these different technologies that help women who otherwise would not have been able to have a baby to have a baby. Now it's curious that actually in this time we seem to even to need these technologies more. The incidence of infertility has greatly increased in the last couple years. Now that's a curiosity in itself. In one sense, we're much healthier than we've ever been before. Our nutrition is better, even our exercise is better to some respect. We have a better sense of fitness anyway. Again, we have a great deal of knowledge of physiology and medicine that can help women. So the question is, why would we have this increased incident of infertility that seems to be an impetus for the discovery of many of these new reproductive technologies? I regret to say that an enormous amount of the infertility that is in existence today is really the aftermath, again, of the use of contraceptives. I heard a gynecologist one time say that he was very frustrated in his practice because he said it seemed that often for the first 10 years that he had a woman as a patient, he was doing everything he could to help her have sex without having babies. And then the second 10 years that he was her doctor, he was helping her to have babies without having sex. And what this meant is that when a woman uses these contraceptive pills and Norplant and Depo-Vera, as I mentioned earlier, she's really causing an assault on her physical system. Not to mention that with some of the extramarital sexual affairs with premarital sex, some promiscuity, women are getting different sexually transmitted diseases, and these sexually transmitted diseases cause scarring of the tubes or scarring of the uterus and make it that much more difficult for a woman to conceive. And of course, abortion itself is another violation of a woman's reproductive system and leaves various scarring. And one of the results both of different contraceptives and the results of abortion can be reduced fertility. Again, a caution must always be made that we shouldn't judge any woman who is infertile. We have no idea whether hers is the result of some, again, a hormonal imbalance or different cysts or blockage of the tubes for which she has no responsibility at all, or whether these things are a result of abuse of different contraceptives and perhaps sometimes even abortions. But it seems that doctors will tell you that they're having a much greater incident of women who come to them with fertility problems. Part of that is simply, again, delayed childbirth, that many women are, are waiting until their 30s, some even until their late 30s, to attempt to conceive a child. And women are much more fertile when they're younger, and as they get older, their fertility decreases. So we have all these technologies. We have these technologies that are now able, again, to help a woman who might have blocked tubes, who might have difficulty ovulating, to help her, in fact, have a baby. Now, some of the ethical questions that surround the questions of these reproductive technologies are the same questions that face us with any technology. There's a very good statement in Don and Vitae, a couple statements here I'd like to read and ponder. Because we're always so proud of ourselves and we can do something new as far as medicine is concerned, and almost always rightly so. Donum Vitae says, Thanks to the progress of the biological and medical sciences, man has at his disposal ever more effective therapeutic resources. But he can also acquire new powers with unforeseeable consequences over human life at its very beginning and in its first stages. Various procedures now make it possible to intervene, not only in order to assist, but also to dominate the processes of procreation. These techniques can enable man to take in hand his own destiny, but they also expose him to the temptation to go beyond the limits of a reasonable dominion over nature. They might constitute progress in the service of man, but they also involve serious risks. 
Many people are therefore expressing an urgent appeal that in interventions on procreation, the values and rights of the human person be safeguarded. Requests for clarification and guidance are coming not only from the faithful, but also from those who recognize the Church as an expert in humanity and with a mission to serve the civilization of love and of life. There's a couple points we want to draw out of this passage. One again is that they have great biological and medical discoveries that promise great advances for mankind, but that with these come a danger. An excellent parallel for this is always nuclear energy, right? That nuclear energy can be used for very destructive purposes. We can bomb whole cities, Nagasaki, Hiroshima, we can bomb them to obliteration. And then for generations have problems with genetic problems from that bombing. Right? Or we can use nuclear energy to give powers to whole cities and allow people to read and heal and do all the things that we do with energy. So we can use the inventions that we have either for great good for mankind or for great harm. Or obviously here when you say, well, gee, you could help a couple who wants to have a baby have a baby, that's a wonderful thing. Infertility can be such an enormous burden, an enormous, it feels like a curse, all right? And often in scripture, actually, it's talked about as a curse, not as a punishment for any sin that you particularly have done, but it's obviously a hardship. It's one of the burdens that we as human beings bear. And this document speaks very eloquently, actually, about the burdens of infertility. It's very natural and very right for people to want to have babies. As I've mentioned, that's a natural outcome of human love, that you love one another, and the natural fruit of that love is a baby that's going to continue your love, be a manifestation of, of your love. It's perfectly natural to want to have a baby, and it's, it's, very, it's a very great burden not to have a baby when you want to be able to have one. But this says that some of these techniques allow man to take in his hand his own destiny and expose him to the temptation to go beyond the limits of a reasonable dominion over nature. This is very important. Now we can do incredible things now with technology. We're getting to the point where we could conceivably make ourselves little human beings that maybe are four feet eight inches tall, right? Maybe have an IQ of 90 and have fairly good, though not mental dexterity, physical dexterity. And all of us could sort of purchase ourselves one of these human beings and have them as a live-in servant. We could do that, okay? That's on the horizon. And I'm hoping that everybody who hears this thinks that that's a highly objectionable suggestion. Right? But these highly objectionable things are really never far from the horizon as far as human beings are concerned. If we can do it, we want to do it. Obviously, it would make our lives easier if each one of us had a live-in servant who would, might have a low IQ and just be happy enough to take whatever orders we give this person. We could make them not too big so they don't eat too much and take up too much space. Again, I think that's highly objectionable. But that's around the corner with what we're going to be able to do with technologies. People might say, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I want to say, well, I hope I'm being ridiculous. But we live in the century of Nazi Germany. We live in a century in which mankind tried to wipe out a whole group of people who were considered to be undesirable, inconvenience to the rest of us. It's in the heart of man to do such things. Now, it says that people turn to the church. We're confused about these things. And rightly, we are. We hear about surrogate motherhood, and we think, well, gee, well, how should we think about that? Here's a woman who's being, it seems, generous, offering her body to another woman to carry her baby for her so that she can have a baby that she couldn't have otherwise. You say, well, gee, that seems a generous act. Is that how I ought to think about it? Ought I think about it as a generous act? Or should I be somewhat horrified and think, oh, no, 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 this is not right. This woman's not married to the man who's the father of this child, and there's something wrong about this. 
it's very easy to get very confused about these issues. And it says here that not only the faithful, but also those who recognize the church as an expert in humanity, turn to the church and ask, well, how should we think about this? Help us, help us think about this topic. So we turn to the church because the church has as its mission a civilization of life and of love. Now this is important. The church is one of the institutions, if not, I would say, the foremost institution on the face of the earth that is really concerned with human dignity and really is concerned with love and human life and is always evaluating actions, not by how much money they will make, not by how much fame we can get from them, not by how easy they will make our lives, but by whether or not they are in accord with human dignity, whether or not they are in accord with God's will. Just a passage in that respect, let me read this one. It says, it would on the one hand be illusory to claim that scientific research and its applications are morally neutral. On the other hand, one cannot derive criteria for guidance from mere technical efficiency, from research's possible usefulness to some at the expense of others, or worse still, from prevailing ideologies. Thus, science and technology require, for their own intrinsic meaning, an unconditional respect for the fundamental criteria of the moral law. That is to say, they must be at the service of the human person, of his inalienable rights, and his true and integral good according to the design and will of God. Okay, and this passage is answering the, the claim that science is morally neutral, that whatever it can do is an advance. But as I mentioned with nuclear power, no, you need to ask, would this be good for mankind, what could be the good uses of this technique, and what might be the evil uses of this advancement, and how should we govern it? Now here's another passage that talks about the church's, again, involvement in this. It says, the natural moral law expresses and lays down the purposes, rights, and duties which are based upon the bodily and spiritual nature of the human person. Therefore, this law cannot be thought of as simply a set of norms on the biological level. Rather, it must be defined as the rational order whereby man is called by the Creator to direct and regulate his life and actions, and in particular to make use of his own body. What's important about this passage is that it makes very clear that human beings, again, are not sort of souls in bodies, right? That a body is just a vehicle. I mentioned that one of Pope Paul VI's prophecies in Humanae Vitae was that contraception would actually lead to man treating his body as though it were some sort of machine. Our body doesn't really express who we are. It's not really an integral part of our nature, but it's just a machine that we can do what we want to with, just like a car, that we can put certain parts in a car. We can change the model of the car. If we want to have a convertible instead of a sedan, we can have that. If we want a van, we can have that. That We can make our bodies do our will. Instead of saying that our body is an integral part of us, it has its own nature, it has its laws that we need to live in accord with. It is part of us, right? And so that the body isn't just a machine, and that's what we're seeing with some of these reproductive technologies. The surrogate mother, as a kind of a machine, her body is a baby-making machine that we can rent for a while, which doesn't treat that woman with the full dignity and respect that she deserves, and will not as well treat her baby with the full dignity that it deserves. We'll talk about that in a moment. So it says here, to continue, a first consequence can be deduced from these principles. An intervention on a human body affects not only the tissues, the organs, and their functions, but also involves the person himself on different levels. It involves, therefore, perhaps in an implicit but nonetheless real way, a moral significance and responsibility. Pope John Paul II forcibly reaffirmed this to the World Medical Association when he said, 
each person in his absolutely unique singularity is constituted not only by his spirit but by his body as well. Thus in the body and through the body one touches the person himself in his concrete reality. To respect the dignity of man consequently amounts to safeguarding this identity of the man, corpora et anima unus, that means one in body and soul, as the Second Vatican Council says. It is on the basis of this anthropological vision that one is to find the fundamental criteria for decision-making in the case of procedures which are not strictly therapeutic, as, for example, those aimed at the improvement of the human biological condition. Now, what we need to have here as a fundamental principle is the Church says it does matter how new human life comes into existence. There are certain proper ways to bring human life into existence, and there are certain improper ways of bringing human life into existence. Obviously, a baby could be conceived through adultery, through an act of incest, an act of sexual abuse, an act of prostitution, an act of rape. The babies can be brought into existence in all these ways. And natural law and the church would say, this is not right. This is not a right way for a baby to come into the world. A baby deserves two loving parents, again, who have this unconditional love for each other and are going to convey that unconditional love to their offspring. And that for a baby to come into existence through an act of, say, of incest or rape is an abuse of the baby, right? It's not fair to the baby. And so the church is going to say that some of these reproductive technologies that we have are also against the natural law, are also against the abuse of the rights of the baby and also of the dignity of the parents of this baby. Now, it's very important to understand that any baby who is conceived is of infinite value. Although it's not fair to a baby that a baby should come into existence through an act of incest, that baby is as valuable to God as the baby that comes into existence through the act of loving parents who have made a commitment in marriage to an unconditional love to each other and to their children. God makes no distinction in the value of human life for how it's conceived. That's very important. We should never think that a baby born out of wedlock or a baby born through any one of these terrible acts such as rape or through any through these illicit reproductive technologies is of any less value than any other human life. They are of infinite value. As a matter of fact, one way of demonstrating that and important to keep in mind is that this question comes up all the time, should abortion be allowed in the cases of rape or incest? And you want to say, well, that baby is as much of a human being as the babies that are conceived through loving acts. And those babies should not be punished for the acts of its father, all right? So that's very important to keep in mind. But let's take a look at some of these different methods that we're talking about here. There's many different methods, and they are right or wrong for a variety of different meanings. The first one I'd like to talk about is artificial insemination. Now, artificial insemination is a fairly simple procedure to understand. It means that the semen is removed from the husband. Largely, it's gained through an act of masturbation. And this is then inserted in a woman's vagina when she is fertile. And one hopes then, of course, that the sperm travels up the tube and meets the egg. So obviously, there's no act of sexual intercourse that precedes this act of conception. The husband provides the semen. The doctor, the technician, inserts the semen in the woman, and the woman conceives. That's called homologous artificial insemination, homologous. Homologous meaning the same, meaning that it's really the semen of the husband. There is also artificial insemination that uses semen from a donor. 
Now, this technique is largely used when the husband himself has a very low sperm count. And what one hopes is that one can distill and intensify the sperm count in the semen. You can use many ejaculations to make one concentration of sperm for the insemination. If a man has such a low sperm count that this isn't possible, obviously the woman can buy semen from a donor. So that's one technique. I'm not going to give the moral evaluation of these techniques at the moment. I'm just giving the technological description of them. Another technique is in vitro fertilization. Now, vitro means glass. In vitro means fertilizing a baby, not so much in a test tube, but actually in a petri dish. We call them test tube babies, but really they're petri dish babies. These techniques are largely used when there's some difficulty with the woman's tubes, that her tubes are blocked and the ovum can't travel through the tubes to meet the semen. So a woman is hyperovulated, meaning that she is usually given fertility drugs so that she will ovulate many eggs at the same time. And then those eggs are removed and they're put in a petri dish and then some of, again, this, this distilled male semen, sperm, is put together with the ovum and the fertilization takes place in the petri dish. So now you have a new little embryo. As a matter of fact, they usually will fertilize many embryos at the same time. As many as seven or eight eggs will be fertilized at the same time. Sometimes one or two of those will be inserted in the woman. Sometimes very many of them will be inserted in the woman. A good question is what happens to those other embryos that are created and not implanted. Sometimes they are simply discarded, put down the, the drain, and sometimes they are frozen for possible future use either by this woman or by another woman. Now here as well you could see that this fertilization could take place with a woman's own eggs and her husband's semen. It could also take place with someone else's eggs and the man's sperm. It could also take place with the mother's eggs, the one who's going to carry the baby, and another man's semen. So here we have a method that can have many different variations about whose eggs and whose sperm are used in the fertilization of a new human life. Now, you can begin to see many difficulties with this procedure. I'm, again, I'm not going to evaluate them morally at the moment. I'm simply going to describe them. There's another method I should have put on my little chart here, maybe two other methods I should put here. One is called GIFT, which is called gamete interfallopium tube transfer, okay? GIFT, gamete interfallopium tube transfer. Now, in this instance, it's much like in vitro fertilization. You superovulate the woman, you get some of her ova, you get the male semen, and you put them together, but you put them together in such a way that there's an air bubble between the two of them. You don't do the fertilization outside of the woman's body, but you reinsert this concoction, the sperm and the ova, which are now very close together with a little air bubble between them, and you reinsert them into the woman's tube, and then you hope that the air bubble will burst and the, the ovum and the sperm will meet, and the fertilization will take place inside the woman's body. That's the procedure called GIFT, very like in vitro fertilization, but instead of the fertilization happening outside of the body, it happens inside the body. There is another procedure that's called tubal ovum transfer. There's H-tot and L-tot. H-tot is high tubal ovum transfer. L-tot is low tubal ovum transfer. This technique is not used very often, and some people think it could be perfected and used much more often. But this involves moving the ovum from an upper part of the woman's tube to a lower part of her tube, or to a lower part from a lower part. 
This means that she's got some blockage in her tube, therefore the sperm cannot meet the egg. So here we're moving the egg to some part of the tube where it is much more likely that the egg can be fertilized by the sperm. Fertilization is taking place inside the woman's body, but it's taking place because the ovum has been moved to a more receptive part of the tube. Now surrogate motherhood is another method of a reproductive technology. And this simply means that one woman carries another woman's baby. Now, there's many different ways, again, that this can be done. She could be impregnated through artificial insemination. When I say another woman's baby, it might not, in fact, be another woman's baby. It might be her eggs. She might be conceived through artificial insemination. Let's say a man is married to a woman who, for some reason, let's say, has had to have a hysterectomy because of some physiological problem. So he still wants to have a baby, and he wants to have a baby who has his genetic makeup. Now, she can't carry a baby to term because she has no uterus. So what he does is he donates his sperm, and a woman who volunteers to carry the baby to term is impregnated through an act of artificial insemination. That's one possibility. Let's say this woman can still deliver eggs, the wife of the husband. She might superovulate, take her eggs, and these could be fertilized by her husband's semen through in vitro fertilization, and these can be put inside the surrogate mother. So here you have another technique which involves either artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. We're going to take a quick break and come back and discuss these methods and a few other methods in a moment. We are discussing various reproductive technologies and trying to assess their moral status. I've just reviewed a few of the techniques, artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization, surrogate motherhood, a technique called gift, a technique called high-taught and low-taught. And now I'm going to discuss a few more before we get into the moral evaluation of these methods. Obviously, women can use fertility drugs. Women who are difficulty ovulating or seem not to ovulate very often, one way to help them is to give them a drug which will make them superovulate or hyperovulate. A woman takes a drug and she may then ovulate one, two, three eggs, as many, sometimes many more eggs at a time through the use of natural family planning. They figure out when this woman is, in fact, going to ovulate, has ovulated, and she and her husband try to time their sexual intercourse at that time so that she might get pregnant. There are also many different corrective surgeries that can be done to unblock a woman's tube, to clear her, say, of endometriosis, surgeries that can be done on the male to help him produce more semen, all different sorts of surgeries that can restore the reproductive organs back to their normal way of proceeding. These two methods actually are for the most part approved by the church. Fertility drugs and corrective surgery are considered to be again something that brings the physical system back to its natural conditioning. Clearly we could have surgery that isn't really corrective. We now have such things as a hypothetical womb that could be inserted into a male. I think there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger film to this effect. Again, we think this is outlandish. We make comic films about it now. But there's certainly some sentiment in some members of the homosexual community that this would be a great thing if males could bear babies as well as females. So we may come to the point where we could construct an artificial womb that could be put as easily in a male as in a female. So when we're talking about corrective surgery here, we're really talking about surgery that brings the body back to its normal functioning. What means do we have for, again, assessing the morality of these actions? We think for the most part, it's very good for married couples to have babies. It's a natural desire and they should want to do it and we'd like to help them do it. What means of helping them have a baby are moral and which means are not? 
I'll read a few passages again from Don and Vitae to help us think about this. Just a few sentences here. It says, these interventions, the ones that are rejected, are not to be rejected on the grounds that they are artificial. As such, they bear witness to the possibilities of the art of medicine, but they must be given a moral evaluation in reference to the dignity of the human person who is called to realize his vocation from God to the gift of love and the gift of life. So it's very important to recognize that these procedures are not being rejected because they're artificial. In fact, some people have that confusion about contraception. They think that the church rejects it because it's artificial. It does not reject contraception because it's artificial, nor does it reject various reproductive technologies because they're artificial. A better term to be used would be they violate nature. We reject those that violate nature. There Again, there are certain artificial things that restore the body to its natural functioning. Again, braces, medicine, crutches, casts, those can all restore the body to its normal functioning. But there are certain procedures that violate nature, that go against nature. I've tried to make an explanation in an earlier class that contraception is something that violates nature. Now I'd like to assess some of these reproductive technologies and say that they're not assisting nature, but they are violating nature. Now this is a very important distinction that's made a little bit clearer in the document a little bit later, where it says, the medical act must be evaluated not only with reference to its technical dimension, but also and above all in relation to its goal, which is the good of persons and their bodily and psychological health. The moral criteria for medical intervention in procreation are deduced from the dignity of human persons, of their sexuality, and of their origin. Medicine which seeks to be ordered to the integral good of the person must respect the specifically human values of sexuality. The doctor is at the service of persons and of human procreation. He does not have the authority to dispose of them or to decide their fate. A medical intervention respects the dignity of persons when it seeks to assist the conjugal act, either in order to facilitate its performance or in order to enable it to achieve its objective once it has been normally performed. This line is incredibly important. A medical intervention respects the dignity of persons when it seeks to assist the conjugal act, either in order to facilitate its performance or in order to enable it to achieve its objective once it has been normally performed. All right, so those interventions are permissible which assist the conjugal act in achieving its normal end. There must be a conjugal act that is directly related to the act of conception. The conjugal act is key. It goes on to say, on the other hand, it sometimes happens that a medical procedure technologically replaces the conjugal act in order to obtain a procreation which is neither its result nor its fruit. In this case, the medical act is not as it should be at the service of conjugal union, but rather appropriates to itself the procreative function and thus contradicts the dignity and the inalienable rights of the spouses and of the child to be born. This is very important. Again, that sometimes these technological procedures can replace the conjugal act. Instead of the spouses being the source of the conception, really it's the technician who is the source of the baby's life. And that's one excellent way to assess these techniques whether or not they assist and facilitate the conjugal act or whether or not they replace the conjugal act and make the technician the primary source of the new life rather than the loving act of the spouses. An important distinction here to go back to the whole discussion we've had on 
natural law. Another passage from Donum Vitae. By comparison with the transmission of other forms of life in the universe, the transmission of human life has a special character of its own, which derives from the special nature of the human persons. The transmission of human life is entrusted by nature to a personal and conscious act, and as such is subject to the all-holy laws of God, immutable and inviolable laws which must be recognized and observed. For this reason, one cannot use means and follow methods which could be licit in the transmission of the life of plants and animals. Very important. We have no trouble with artificial insemination of cows. We have no trouble with in vitro fertilization of cows. We would have no trouble with surrogate motherhood of cows because there are no distinctively human values involved there. Cows can be brought into existence any way we can do it, but we should never make babies in a production line. We should never make babies be the result of something that happens in a laboratory as opposed to the love-making act of loving spouses. So this is key. We've got this important distinction now in place between assisting the conjugal act and replacing the conjugal act. Now we have to talk a bit about why it's so important, of course, that the baby come into existence through a conjugal act. That's the passage I'm going to look at here is this, again from Don and Vitae. It answers the question. There's a question actually asked right in the text, a subheading that says, why must human procreation take place in marriage? It says, every human being is always to be accepted as a gift and a blessing of God. However, from the moral point of view, a truly responsible procreation vis-a-vis -vis the unborn child must be the fruit of marriage. For human procreation has specific characteristics by virtue of the personal dignity of the parents and of the children. The procreation of a new person, whereby the man and the woman collaborate with the power of the Creator, must be the fruit and the sign of the mutual self-giving of the spouses of their love and their fidelity. The fidelity of the spouses in the unity of marriage involves reciprocal respect of their right to become a mother and a father only through each other. The fidelity of the spouses in the unity of marriage involves reciprocal respect of their right to become a father and a mother only through each other. Now this is very important. The church is claiming that some of these reproductive technologies, the ones that involve using semen or egg from someone other than the wife and the husband who are going to raise this baby, are violations of the fidelity of marriage. It's a violation of the faithfulness of the spouses for each other. So this is one reason why these reproductive technologies might be considered immoral, because they are a violation of the fidelity of the spouses to each other. If they involve the use of ova or sperm from someone other than the wife and the husband. So that's one reason. The second principle that these reproductive technologies violate, those that are wrong, are that they violate the rights of the child. They violate the fidelity of the spouses, but they also violate the dignity and the rights of the child. It says here, the child has the right to be conceived, carried in the womb, and brought into the world and brought up within marriage. It is through the secure and recognized relationship to his own parents that the child can discover his own identity and achieve his own proper human development. The parents find in their child a confirmation and completion of their reciprocal self-giving. The child is the living image of their love, the permanent sign of their conjugal union, the living and indissoluble concrete expression of their paternity and maternity. 
by reason of the vocation and social responsibilities of the person, the good of the children and of the parents contributes to the good of civil society. The vitality and stability of society require that children come into the world within a family and that the family be firmly based on marriage. The tradition of the church and anthropological reflection recognize in marriage and in its indissoluble unity the only setting worthy of truly responsible procreation. This passage says something we've been saying all along, but now in the context of these reproductive technologies, that a child should be brought into the world between two loving parents, a male and a female, who have an unconditional love for each other, who are going to convey that unconditional love to their offspring. Now some people might argue here, they might say, well, what about adoption? Don't many people adopt a child? And what's the big difference between making a baby through artificial means of procreation or adopting? Parents are adopting here a child that has none of their genetic makeup. You want to say, well, adoption is a very good solution to a problem that already exists, right? It's a very good solution to a problem that already exists. Obviously, if a baby is being put up for adoption, the decision has been made by the mother or society that this baby cannot be cared for by the mother of this child or the father of this child or its surrounding family. And it's best given to those who do have a stable relationship, a loving relationship, and for some reason are not able to have children of their own or obviously who have hearts big enough to adopt children who might not be easily placeable in other families. So adoption is a very good response to a problem that already exists. Whereas reproductive technologies, in my mind, are creating new problems, right? They solve one problem, they solve the, the problem of infertility, but if they don't do so in a moral fashion, if they don't do so in a moral fashion, they will be creating new problems for society. So adoption is an act that solves a problem that already exists. Immoral reproductive technologies create problems, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But now that we have our fundamental principles in place, that the way to assess reproductive technologies is whether or not they assist or replace nature, whether or not they respect the conjugal act, whether or not they involve the sperm in the ova of the wife and the husband, and whether or not they respect the rights of the child. Let's go back and look at these various technologies that we've already reviewed, at least as far as the method is concerned. First of all, let's quickly look again at corrective surgery and fertility drugs. I've already talked about these, and it may be perfectly clear that for these, if, in fact, what they're really doing is restoring the body to its natural functioning, if a woman takes a fertility drug, she is super ovulating. She's getting pregnant, though, through an act of sexual intercourse with her husband. That is the direct source of her pregnancy. Now, the procedure that she has has helped her. It's assisted nature, but it hasn't replaced nature. And the child is conceived through an act of sexual intercourse by the male and the female. Same with any procedure that helps a man in his contribution to the sexual act. These are things that restore nature to its natural functioning. There would be no objection to the use of fertility drugs and the use of corrective surgery for helping people who need help in conceiving. Now in both of those procedures, by the way, a little side here, really NFP is enormously helpful. The use of natural family planning can really help people diagnose what is a woman's problem in fertility, again, whether she has endometriosis, whether she has cysts, whether she has a hormonal imbalance. Her chart or her cycle takes on different patterns 
depending upon which one of these problems she has. So if she charts and goes into a fertility specialist with these charts, it's going to be enormously helpful for him to determine what kind of problem we have here. It can also suggest whether the problem is the male problem. If a woman is having a fairly regular cycle, it seems that there are no problems with her physiology, then it could be determined that the problem is with the male, and then something could be done about his situation. All right, let's look at these other procedures. Let's go to surrogacy. Now, perhaps it could be obvious at this point that surrogacy is a kind of infidelity. As generous as the woman might be who wants to offer her body to carry another woman's child or a man's child, her sexual powers are not being used in the service of her husband. They're being used in the service of someone else. They belong only to her husband. Right? So here we have a child that is conceived and brought into existence through a generous act of a woman, though, again, some of these women are paid, and though rarely paid well. I'll talk about this a little later. They can be paid, they can rent out their womb. Most often that's the case, though sometimes grandmothers will actually carry a baby to term for their daughters. So they're both, in a certain sense, the mother and the grandmother of the baby. We'll talk a little bit later about these confused relationships. But in one sense, surrogacy demonstrates, first of all, that we do have a kind of infidelity here. We have a woman who is putting her sexual powers to use of someone to whom she is not married. We'll talk now about in vitro fertilization. Now this is one again where once you understand how the procedure works, you're taking the ovum and the sperm and you're making the baby outside of the womb. Now there's no conjugal act involved here. There's no direct act of sexual intercourse that leads to the conception of this child. As a matter of fact, obviously the male and female need not even be married to each other. Again, you could use another woman's ova and another man's sperm. There's no necessity that the ova and the sperm that are coming together here belong to the woman or to the man. So again, here we have a kind of replacement of the conjugal act, not an assisting of the conjugal act. There's no conjugal act that takes place. And then you have this baby that is, in a certain sense, not procreated, but reproduced, right? Much like in a laboratory. And one, a very good example of this, again, is that there's what we now call selective implantation. You try to pick out the embryos, of course, that you think are the healthiest ones. And if you have any genetic problems, you try to discern which one of these embryos might have the genetic problems that you don't want to pass on to your children. And you get rid of those embryos, right? So here there's a clear disrespect for the humanity and the dignity of the human life that is the embryo. A very clear and very serious disrespect that we're going to pick out which embryos we think are worthy of bringing to term. Also, we freeze <laughs> the excess embryos, which this document makes very clear is not in accord with human dignity, that human beings should be frozen and put in storage. There's obviously many abuses with these procedures. Again, you read about them all the time in the newspaper. For instance, you'll read about clinics where the doctor who runs the clinic has used largely his own semen to impregnate all the women who have come through there. There was one in Virginia a couple years ago where a doctor apparently fathered hundreds of children. The women thought they were getting semen from other men, but the doctor didn't want to pay other men for their semen, so he used his own. So somewhere in Virginia, there are several hundred children that have the same father, different mothers but the same father. This was discovered, ironically enough, because a woman looking at a picture of her baby discovered that he looked very much like the doctor. <laughs> so this is an enormous abuse. They've recently had cases in California where women have been super ovulated and their ova have been taken and they've conceived and had a child, but the excess ova were sold to another woman or the excess embryo were implanted in other women. So here you see enormous abuses through this procedure. 
The same with artificial insemination. Even though here, the baby is conceived within a woman's body, because what you do again is you take the semen and it's the technician though who inserts the semen into the woman. There's no conjugal act between the spouses. It's the technician who impregnates the woman rather than the father. Now what's important here to see again is the role of the technician and how this replaces rather than assists the act. Again, we can talk about other abuses. We can talk about a case where a woman had some of her husband's semen frozen. They got divorced. Then she decided that she wanted to have a baby, so she had the semen inserted in herself. She became pregnant. Now she sued the husband, former husband, for child support. Of course, he didn't want to pay child support. He disclaimed fatherhood. He said, I had nothing to do with this. So the courts had a difficulty deciding what to do. And what they decided was, that the technician was the father of the child. It was the technician actually who impregnated the woman, not the former husband, he was long gone. The court cases that are coming out of these procedures indicate that the church has an insight into what is going on here. The conjugal act has been replaced. And in this case, the technician was by law determined to be the father of the child. Now the irony of course is that the technician could be a female. And what you have here is someone who's designated to be the father of the child who has no biological relationship to the child, no legal relationship to the child, but was simply involved in the technical act of impregnating the woman. So the major thing to see with these procedures is that, again, you have a technician who is involved and his or her act replaces that of the father. Now here you have uh, multiple problems that come from this. You have the problem of uncertain parenthood. Who really is the father and the mother of this child? If it wasn't my ova that made the child, am I really the mother? If it wasn't his sperm that made the, the child, is he the father? Is the technician the father? Children can get very confused from this. And then you have all these excess embryos that are made that right now the medical profession is very determined to do experimentations on. Why let them go to waste? Why let them go to waste? Why not do all sorts of medical interventions, experimental interventions on these children so that we can find new medical discoveries that will help human beings? The bottom line here is that the church says that there are certain proper ways to bring babies into existence. It should be through the loving act of spouses. The children then will be respected and the dignity and value of marriage will be respected. The fact that we have had so many outrageous abuses of these reproductive technologies, the fact that we have 65-year-old women who are now having children, the fact that we have technicians who are being designated the father of children, indicate that we have let loose something that is going to be very destructive for our culture. So again, by reference to natural law and reference to the church, we can understand how we ought to evaluate different acts that we might wish to perform as human beings. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.